Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hey everyone, before we start, just a note that we discuss sexual assault and abuse in this episode. Your Honor, the truth is, I did something that was so awful and I wish I could take it back. It's also the truth. I had an affair with a married man. And it's also the truth that Joey knew of my intentions towards his wife and he encouraged me. That voice you just heard is Amy Fisher a teen girl from Long Island who in 1992 became a tabloid sensation almost overnight when she shot Mary Jo Badafuco, the wife of a much older man with whom she'd been having sex. Amy would go on to claim that that man, Joey Badafuco, put her up to it. Sometimes I think this is a nightmare and it didn't happen, and then I realized that it did. Within days, the New York Daily News would splash a picture of 16-year-old Amy across its front page. She was wearing jean cutoffs, a white T-shirt, and handcuffs. The headline, the Long Island Lolita. And that label, it would follow Amy Fisher forever. I'm Susie Vanikaram. And I'm Jessica Bennett. And this is In Retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. This week, we're talking about Amy Fisher and how she came to be known as the Long Island Lolita. But we're also talking about the way that word, Lolita, and that trope is used to paint young girls as precocious and seductive. This is part one. Susie, remind me, what actually happened in this case? So I'm going to get into all the details, and it's a very twisty story with lots of ins and outs. But the essentials of the case are that a 17-year-old Amy Fisher, who is a senior in high school, shows up at the home of Mary Jo Buttafuoco in Long Island and shoots her in the face. And it comes out and unravels over the course of many months in the tabloid press that she's been having an affair with Mary Jo's husband and that she has shot her in a 
what's described often as like a jealous rage. It's often compared to Fatal Attraction, which is a movie that had come out a couple years before this. And it becomes this really salacious national obsession with this story, but particularly around Amy, who is seen as this like seductress. So what made you pick this moment? So, you know, this was just a huge story at the time. It's one of the first really big tabloid stories that I remember being very aware of. I was in high school when this happened, and there were three TV movies made about it at the time. I remember watching the TV movies when they aired. And I wasn't living in New York at that time, but it was just a really national phenomenon, this story. And... I came across it again recently, and I thought I knew so much about this story. And what really struck me and made me want to go deeper is that actually there were so many things I did not know. Not just that I didn't remember, because obviously there are things you forget, but that I never knew, even though I thought I read and saw everything there was to know about this story. And you were about the same age as Amy Fisher when this was happening, right? Yeah, I was around the same age. and. One thing that is really interesting about it is that I never really thought of Amy Fisher as a child at the time, right? Because I didn't think of myself as a child. So when she was kind of presented to the world as this seductress, this woman who had all this agency, uh, a seductress, Mm -hmm. a vixen, and then eventually the label that would follow her for the rest of her life and continues to follow her now, the Long Island Lolita, that never occurred to me as odd. But looking back on it now, I mean, she very much was a child. Right, this is a girl. It was a girl. And not to say that she didn't make a lot of bad decisions or shouldn't have been held accountable for some of those decisions, but it's really remarkable how high a price she paid versus Joey Buttafuoco, who was in his late 30s and really was the villain of the story. Let's talk a little bit more about the details of the story itself. Can you take me back to the beginning? Yeah, so I'm going to take you back to the shooting, and then I'm going to wind my way back. So the shooting takes place on Tuesday, May 19th in 1992, as we've said, at around 11.30 a.m. A teenage girl knocks on the door of Mary Jo Buttafuoco's house in Massapequa, New York, which is a Long Island enclave, a kind of typical suburban neighborhood, And Mary Jo is the wife of Joey Buttafuoco, a 38-year-old local car mechanic. Mary Jo and Joey were high school sweethearts. So at this point, they've been together for 20-some years. And the girl who is knocking on the door is Amy Fisher, but Mary Jo doesn't know that. Amy is a 17-year-old senior at the local high school in a nearby town. And Amy says her name is Anne Marie, and claims Mm. that she has a 16-year-old sister who doesn't exist because Amy is an only child and tells Mary Jo that her husband, Joey, is having an affair with her. And as proof, she brings this T-shirt from his auto body shop that's called Complete Auto Body. And Mary Jo's pretty unconvinced by that. Like, she's like, he gives these T-shirts out to everyone And she's a little annoyed by this whole thing. She's like, who is this child at my door? Yeah, and what is she saying about my husband? And then at some point, Amy ultimately pulls out a gun, a twenty-five caliber semi-automatic pistol, and shoots Mary Jo in the face, and then runs to a waiting car and speeds away. 
Okay, so I purposely didn't remind myself of the details of this story when you were researching. And I have so many questions. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. Were they really having an affair? How does a 38-year-old car mechanic meet a 17-year-old? Like, who was driving the car? But I know you're going to get to all of those. So first, is Mary Jo critically injured? Like, she's shot in the face. Does she die? Yes. No, she doesn't die. She is very critically injured. It's essentially considered by her doctors a miracle that she survives. She undergoes eight hours of neurosurgery. But oh, wow. when she wakes up the next morning, she does remember the incident. She now has a bullet okay. lodged in her brain, which, by the way, is still there, I think, to this day. Her face is partially paralyzed. She has double vision in one eye. She's deaf in one ear. But despite oh, all that, she provides the police with a very detailed description of the teenager from the incident. Okay. And Joey, who is standing by her hospital bed, obviously, immediately mm -hmm. recognizes the description and tells the police that it's Amy. Okay. So in answer to your question about whether or not they were really having an affair, I mean, obviously, right. Amy didn't have a sister, so Joey wasn't having an affair with her 16-year-old sister, right. he was having an affair with her, which started when she was 16, even though she's 17 at the time of the shooting. And okay. the police end up arresting Amy within 72 hours. And what they say is that Joey confesses at the hospital that he was, in fact, having an affair with her. But then he will go on to deny it for months and months and months. Like, for a full year, he will deny that they had a relationship, even though he has told the police that once already. He will just say that she had an obsessive crush on him and was essentially like a stalker. I have to ask. I know you're probably going to get to it later, but where are Amy's parents? So Amy's parents are around. She's an only child that's very much doted on by her parents. And an interesting detail is actually when she's picked up by the police and then she's questioned mm -hmm. all night and she eventually ends up giving them a 10-page handwritten confession, she's really worried about what her parents are going to think. I mean, it really highlights okay. that she's like a teenage kid. She doesn't really understand the seriousness of what she's done. So she's mostly worried when the police pick her up about what is going to happen when her parents find out, right? Okay, so what is said in this 10-page written confession? I've tried to find the confession because obviously I would love to read all 10 pages of it, but I haven't been able to find it. So what I do know is that sometime in the months that follow, she actually will say that Joey knew about her plans to shoot Mary Jo, that for months all he did was talk about how much he hated her and how much he wanted her to die. And so that's where Amy has gotten this idea. And eventually she suggests to Joey that she will get a gun and do it and that he agrees. He vehemently denies that. He has never admitted to having any involvement in the shooting. Okay, so... We've established she's 16 when she meets him. Yes. They begin this, I guess it's an affair. Like, I don't even exactly know what to call it because she's 16 and he's a 38-year-old man. Like, yeah, I guess I they're mean, sleeping together. But, like, I don't know, this keeps coming up for us. Yeah, that keeps coming up for us. It's, like, something we're really struggling with, which is in all of these kind of abusive relationships, it's really hard to know what the right language is to use because— at the time, all the coverage refers to it as an affair, so it's hard not to use that language. But it's also hard to use that language because is he her boyfriend? He's much older than her. He's more than 20 years older than her. She's underage. It is statutory rape. There's no question about that. So it is just a struggle that we're going to keep having yeah. through these episodes. So it's worth calling that out. And how on earth does a 30-year-old grown-ass man meet a 16-year-old that he's about to begin a relationship with? Yeah, great question. So how they meet is that he is a mechanic, and one day she goes to his 
auto body shop with her dad. Her dad has a red Cadillac, and he takes it into Joey's shop for some repairs. And she is, by all accounts, kind of immediately enamored of him. And she subsequently goes back herself. Her dad is like, just go back and, you know, they'll put it on my bill or whatever. And she goes back and gets some cosmetic work done. And then she starts to make excuses. To the car. Yeah, to the the car. And then she starts making or finding excuses to go back. There's some sense that she gets into, like, little fender benders or creates issues with her car so that she can continue to see him. And they start having sex not long after, and apparently a lot of it. So she says the first time happens at her home one day when she drops off her car and he drives her home. And then there are a lot of visits to motels, which there are receipts for, and they have sex in the shop. And here's an amazing detail. They also have sex on this boat, which is called Double Trouble. I feel like all these guys always have boats with absurd names. Yes, always. Always boats with names that you're just like, That's really too on the nose for me. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about who Amy Fisher encounters when she innocently goes with her dad to the mechanic. I mean, he's a man who would have a boat called Double Trouble. He is um, a former weightlifting and arm wrestling champion. I don't know what it means to be an arm wrestling champion. I mean, it seems self-explanatory, but just a funny detail. Something you do on Long Island. Yeah, exactly. He's married with a couple kids, 9 and 12 at the time of the shooting. Oh, okay. And he's known in their little community in Long Island that consists of all these little towns as the life of the party, this, like, Mm. fun guy who's always wheeling and dealing. He's got a reputation as a bit of a cut-up. He loves attention. And he's about to get a lot of it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? 
Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Okay, so before the shooting, Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher are having this relationship, and he's taking her to all of these motels, right? So wouldn't that mean there was evidence to prove that this affair was happening? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that after Amy's arrested, he continues to deny the affair for so long because there is just so much evidence. And he's denying it publicly in the press, like to his wife. Who is he denying it to? Very much to his wife, who stands by him and believes him. He's doing a ton of press. And I guess the police can't be like, JK, he confessed to us. Or can they? Like, has it not been reported that he has confessed? They, they, they do. They do say that. So they're just, there's two narratives. Yeah, and he's the just, police are like, yeah, he's he doing told the, us. He's doing a he Trump. Just den- yeah, he just denies it. He's like, I didn't tell them that. I don't know why they're saying that. And then he wow, just goes okay. on this, like, sort of offensive. And he's supported by Mary Jo. And, you know, Mary Jo's an interesting mm-hmm. part of this story, right? Because she is the only true victim. She's just living her life, and one day this girl shows up and shoots her, and she really suffers. She has this bullet in her brain. She's always going to have the effects of this in her life. But I think the thing that really strikes everyone about this is that it's pretty obvious he's lying, but she stands Mm -hmm. by him with such vehemence that Mm -hmm. it seems to give him cover. And so, of course, there are receipts. And in fact, one of his co-workers at the body shop says to the police that Badafuku bragged about giving Amy her first orgasm. They were having an affair. There's just no question about it. Okay. And so initially, the shooting doesn't really get a ton of coverage. It's like sort of a local story. But when does it start to blow up? So it takes a couple days. You know, she's arrested a couple days after the shooting. And A couple days after that, there is the infamous Daily News Long Island Lolita cover. And that's the first kind of inkling that this is going to be a big story. But what ultimately really blows the story up in kind of an epic way is that on June 1st, which is less than a month after the shooting, A Current Affair, this tabloid TV program that's very popular at the time, airs a grainy video which allegedly shows that Amy Fisher is an escort. Wait, was she an escort? Yeah, I mean, there are so many complexities to the story. It it does appear that she was working as a sex worker before the shooting. And I'll get into that later because Joey was involved in that. But let's just stay in this moment a little longer. Okay. So what happens is one of her alleged former customers has recorded a video without her knowledge and, and this was when she's 16, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy that he did this, and it was filmed before she was in the news. So I guess he just did this for himself. And then he sells the tape to a current affair for around $8,000. Okay. You don't actually see the sexual encounter on the tape, but you see her ask him for money, and he 
pays her. And then she asks him to turn the lights off. So for a long period, it's dark. And then the lights come back on. And he asks her if she wants to go with him to a bachelor party. And she responds, anything. I'm wild. I don't care. I like sex. And you can just imagine how this played out in the tabloids. So this is like a camcorder yes. that he has propped up somewhere. Yes. Like, I'm like, is this a selfie video? Like, I am uh, I need to... It's like a hidden camcorder, right? It's like before iPhones or anything. Yep. I think it's like in his basement. Okay. And without her knowledge, he has made a sex tape of this underage girl that is now, I want to reiterate, being aired on national television. Can you imagine now a sex tape being aired on national television? So is this kind of a turning point in the story? They show this tape? Yeah, and I think an interesting thing to note is obviously that he was paid for this, right? Yeah, this kind of pay-for-play, that's what it's called when you pay for stories, was so common back then. And this is sort of how the tabloids dealt with stories. Yeah. Like this was the ecosystem. And I think that is just not something real journalists do, right? You and I would never pay for a story. But there are still some ways in which that happens. The Daily Mail is probably the only kind of digital publication that will occasionally pay for a story. But an interesting detail that most people don't know is that the way network journalism actually does pay for stories, even though it claims it never does, is that when you do a big interview with someone that's, like, in the headlines, you aren't allowed ethically to pay them to appear on the show. But you can pay them for other things. Like, if they give you videotapes, you can license them if they give you pictures. Right. So there is a way that some network television still does pay in a way for stories. But back then, it was just super blatant. It was just like, we'll pay you, right, right. come on, they weren't even and talk. To hide it. There was no yeah. ethical standards around this. Okay, so this is a total feeding frenzy. Everyone is reporting on this. What kinds of headlines are we actually getting in these tablets? Yeah, so in addition to the Long Island Lolita, the Daily News does a follow-up, the Lolita tapes, and the New York Post okay. does Call Girl by Night. And I think the prize for most salacious goes to the New York Newsday headline, which is, oh, Amy, oh, Amy, oh, Amy. Ew. Gross. Oh, and isn't she also on the cover of People? I mean, I guess this is every. It's like it's now everywhere. extended beyond the New York tabloids. Yeah, so it's now the story is extending beyond the New York tabloids, and she's also on the cover of People as the lethal Lolita. So this name is really starting to stick. And she's going to be known as the Long Island Lolita now forever. So there's so many complexities to this story. But was she really an escort? Like, is that part true? She was working as a prostitute? Yeah, I mean, that part is true. She was a sex worker, but I think like everything else in the story, it's not quite that simple or as it seems. Right. After A Current Affair airs this tape of her, she has a bail hearing, and her lawyer says that actually it's Joey who recruited Amy to work at the escort service, and he calls Joey her pimp, which I'm not sure is technically oh. true because I don't think he was, like, taking a cut, but he is the one it appears, who recruited her to be part of this agency after their affair started or their relationship okay. or whatever we're calling it. And her lawyer actually says in this public hearing, Amy Fisher was used and abused by Mr. Betafuco. He did a number of things that were reprehensible, including putting a young girl into prostitution and using a young girl for his own purposes. I believe the wrong person stands before the docket at this time. But that's not 
really the narrative that plays out, right? It's like she's no longer this innocent girl who's been taken advantage of by this man. She is this, like, sex worker, seductress, seductress. who's shot his wife, who's like an unhinged fatal attraction type character. And that characterization of her really doesn't go away. It's interesting because I feel like this still plays out today where you can have these two competing narratives. One in the actual courtroom, and that's what the lawyer is arguing, that is completely different from the one that has taken hold in the popular culture. And so while New Yorkers are going around referring to the Long Island Lolita, her lawyer can talk about how she's a victim and an underage girl and being forced or whatever you want to call it to be a sex worker In a court of law. It is pretty wild that this story only kind of plays out in this salacious way. Like, very few people are like, wait a second, if she's a prostitute, what's his role in that? And he never admits that he was involved with this escort agency, but there does appear to be evidence that he was. And the escort agency is called ABBA, and the Daily News looks into it. And I'll read you a little bit from that article. Okay. The Daily News interviewed owners of two escort services who said Butafuku recruited young women to work for ABBA and was known by the nickname Joey Coco Pops because he supplied cocaine to hookers and their clients. Butafuku denies both charges, but he does admit to being treated for an unspecified substance abuse problem three years ago. His attorney says he is free of that problem now. Joey Coco Pops. Yeah, I mean, look, Joey Coco Pops is actually a great tabloid headline name, but we do not see Joey Coco Pops go viral the way we see the Long Island Lolita go viral, right? There is evidence that he is working for an escort agency and giving cocaine to other sex workers, but that doesn't really take hold in the national obsession with this story. I didn't even know this detail until I did this research. And so what's happening in court? Does the judge buy this idea that he is her pimp? No, he's completely unswayed by it. And so he actually sets the highest bail in the history of the county at that time. It's a $2 million bail. Okay, and I don't have a good sense of Amy's family at this point. Is that something they can afford? Not really. I mean, they're a very middle-class family. They work six days a week in an upholstery shop that they own. They're not, like, super rich, high-flying People, they're just like a seemingly normal middle-class family from the 90s. Okay, so they can't pay it. So what do they do? Do they appeal that? Can you appeal that? Yeah, so you can appeal, and her attorney does try and appeal. But after he's rejected a couple times, he decides to get creative. Her attorney is a former vibrating bed salesman, whatever that means, and a frustrated (laughs) actor. I don't I don't know. Okay, You're going to ask pause. me what that means and I'm going to tell you I do not know what a I think it has something to do with waterbeds, right? Yeah, I like mean, waterbeds were popular at this time. That's and then kind of immediately what I assume that it was like a vibrating waterbed, but I honestly I don't know. It's just one of the I'm going to google it while you're talking. It's just one of those details that you're like I have to include this cuz it's so specific and weird. Oh my god. Yeah, look, wait. I'm looking at a picture from an article <laughs> of Something called the Magic Fingers Relaxation Service. This is a hotel room, and there's like a woman standing by showing this sign. And yes, you put in 25 cents for 15 minutes, and it says it quickly carries you into the land of 
tingling relaxation and ease. Mm. Try it. You'll never sleep so good. Well, I guess the business wasn't that successful because he's gone on from his vibrating bed salesman days to become a lawyer. But because he is this kind of showman, this failed actor, he really takes on the role of being her lawyer in this very public way. And he announces that what he's going to do to raise money for her to make bail is he's going to sell her life story to a publisher or a movie company. And he essentially just like puts it up for auction and is like, if anyone wants her life story, they can bid. And he does get a ton of bids for her life story. And eventually he does sell it. And she does make bail. And she's released in late July over the strenuous objections of Mary Jo Buttafuoco, who is just like, I do not feel safe with this woman not being behind bars. And she gives a press conference and she says, I just know what this girl did to me in cold blood. She's a sick girl. Which, I mean, fair for Mary Jo. So Susie, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in the culture at the time. But one thing that stuck out to me as you're describing this is this is 1992, which is the so-called year of the woman. This was the year after Anita Hill testified before Congress about sexual harassment suffered at the hands of Clarence Thomas. And following that, there was this woman's wave in Congress where 24 women were elected to the House of Representatives. I think there were four to the Senate. And all of the headlines were talking about this progressive time that we were in. It was the year of the woman. And yet this is happening amidst that. So what else is happening at the time? Yeah, I'm going to sort of set the scene for you of what was going on in America in 1992. So this is also the year that Bill Clinton is elected president. This election is a clarion call for our country to face the challenges of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the next century. It's his first term. So this is well before the Monica Lewinsky stuff comes to light. It's also the year of the L.A. riots. Black smoke pouring into the sky all over town. That's what Los Angeles looks like this morning. It is the year Mike Tyson goes on trial for sexual assault. Tyson was indicted by a special grand jury on charges that he allegedly raped an 18-year-old beauty pageant contestant. So that's kind of the era that Amy's story enters into. And this is playing out prominently in the tabloids, right? Like, the tabloids are a huge part of this. Yeah, a huge part of this, and also extremely powerful in this era. Really throughout the 80s and 90s in New York, this was the heyday of the tabloid era. It's three papers, the New York Post, the Daily News, and Newsday. And they just set the tone and agenda for coverage in the city. And there's also something that we don't really have now, which is tabloid television shows like Hard Copy and A Current Affair. These were hugely popular shows. And really the only modern corollary is probably TMZ. But TMZ doesn't Mm -hmm. have kind of a stranglehold on the culture the way Hard Copy and A Current Affair did. Those shows, tabloid papers, they were everywhere. Do you think everybody knows what a tabloid is? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I know exactly what makes something a tabloid other than just like 
that it's salacious. It's basically, can you read it on the subway without folding it? Oh, <laughs> So a broadsheet paper so like is like Times the New York is, oh, Times. I didn't know that. Where you have to open the pages, and if you're sitting close to other people on the subway, you fold it over so that you're not like elbowing them, and you read it. But tabloids are the smaller size, and you can page through it. Like it's, I don't know, it's a little bit larger than a magazine. But... This was a time in New York where, like, these papers set the agenda and the tone, and they had these iconic covers. They still do to some extent, where everyone would rush to the newsstands and they would see the New York Post and the Daily News side by side, and sometimes Newsday, which was the Long Island-based paper. And you would look at what the headline of the day was, and you would compare how they had framed it. (laughs) And the headline writers sort of competed for who would have the best headline of the day. To get back to Amy— So you were saying that she just managed to make bail thanks to the lawyer who is the ex-vibrating mattress salesman. He's sold the rights to her story. Now she's out awaiting sentencing. But I want to get back to her parents for a second, because where are they in all of this? Like, are they defending her? Are they going with her to court? What is their relationship? You know, Amy's relationship with her parents is pretty complicated. They do stand by her, and she's often portrayed as the spoiled child, but the truth is she had a pretty fucked up childhood, and there was definitely some sexual abuse early on. But all of that comes out much later in her books. She has two, and interviews she did. Okay, got it. So it's a complicated relationship, and we know it was definitely not an easy childhood. Yeah, that's not known so much at the time, but it is pretty clear now that she had a very traumatic childhood. And she does eventually allege that also she was abused by her father. Physically? The exact nature of that abuse is not entirely known. It's pretty clear that it was physical, but not clear if there was a sexual component to it. But all the press is reporting at that time, because they don't know any of that information, is Mm -hmm. that she has these you know, parents who really spoil her. Her father, Elliot Fisher, is 56 years old at this time, and her mother is 39. So her father's a lot older than her mother, and maybe that's why she doesn't automatically think this age gap between her and Joey is so weird, because they're almost 20 years apart as well. She's described in the press as this very spoiled child. In one article in People, the evidence they give to support that is that she has her own room with matching furniture and her own phone and an endless supply of stuffed animals. (laughs) And that really struck me because I was like, a room full of stuffed animals for a 16-year-old girl isn't something I associate with like some spoiled vixen. It really just like evokes this image of A girl, a little girl who's gotten wrapped up in something that's just much beyond her comprehension. That's so interesting because it kind of plays into this, like, virginal temptress thing. I don't know if you remember, there was a famous cover of Britney Spears in Rolling Stone when she was young, and it was sort of the first big cover. And in the spread in there— I was researching this at one point. There's an image of her lying on her bed in sort of a sexy manner surrounded by stuffed animals. And it just reminds me of that because part of the thing that was so titillating about Britney Spears at that time was that, like, is she a girl? Is she a woman? And I think there's something about that we're tapping in here with Amy, too. Like, a magazine knows how that will play out. Like, all of these little details, or you have an idea of how they're going to play when you're putting them into a story. And the idea of this sexy young vixen who was maybe a sex worker, maybe not, but had this affair, and 
has a room full of stuffed animals. Yeah, in a weird way, it contributes to her sexualization, even though it's not a sexy thing to have. And right. the other details also that they use to be like, she's so spoiled, are kind of silly, right? It's like, they're like, she has her own phone line. And I mean, I had my own phone line. I was a little spoiled, but I wasn't like, you know, Paris Hilton or mm-hmm. anything. And she has her own car. And this detail is kind of relevant because it's something that her and Joey use in their relationship. She has a beeper, which apparently is considered Uh, a very fancy thing to have among her high school friends. Do the kids know what a beeper is? I think we need to explain that. It's a pager. It's a pager. I had one in high school. Did you have one? No, I never had one. Because I honestly associated them. I mean, I know this is terrible and probably somewhat. With drug dealers. Fucked up. But yeah, I I associated them with drug dealers. Well, no, I mean, that's not fucked up. Drug dealers had pagers. That was like how you got your drug dealer on (laughs) to call you back. But it became popular at a certain point. It was not till years later in the late 90s when I had a pager. But yeah, I saved my money up. I saved my allowance. Anyway, the point is, a pager was like a little button thing that you could put on your belt or in your purse or whatever. And you would call it from a phone and you could type in a code. And so you would get a code in the pager. And so like my pager code was 11. So when I would page my friends, I'd be like, uh, 411-11. And it would be like, what's up from Jess? <laughs> I love and that then they would like know. a whole secret language, which I did not know about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they would know to call me on my home phone. I don't know how common that was in 1992. Maybe that was a slightly spoiled thing to have. But like by the time I was in high school in 1998, we kind of all had pagers. Well, the code thing is really relevant because another one of those little details in the story that I feel like if you wrote into a fictional story, people would be like, come on, is that Joey Buttafuoco's code for Amy was 007. Oh, so that was like, it's 007 calling you. Yeah, which is like sort of gets to this idea that he's this like right. he's really self-important man corny. who's like thinks he's like right. James Bond when he's really just yes. this like creep mechanic who's creeping on car little mechanic. girls. It's like perfect that he's a car mechanic. Yeah. Um, also, now that I've said that, I have remembered that my code was actually 17 and my friend Anna's code was 11. So I just want to <laughs> clarify that for the record. So Anna isn't mad. Okay, fair, fair. Okay, so Susie, let's get back to <laughs> the case itself. Okay, so there's this period after she's posted bail, she's out, but before she's pled guilty, when the circus continues. Yeah, there are these frequent press conferences from lawyers on both sides. The Buttafuoco's themselves do a lot of talk show appearances and press conferences. Everyone involved is, like, really leaning into this circus atmosphere. Okay, yeah, sounds intense. Yeah, and watching it all back, I became really curious about what it must have been like to cover the story as it was happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's this one reporter who really stands out, this woman, Amy Pagnozzi, who was a columnist for the New York Post, And she was literally the only person who was not buying into the prevailing narrative. So I did a little digging, and I found her. You're the first person that I've talked to about this for years and years, because I basically have always turned this subject down. And here she is describing what it was like to be part of the Amy Fisher scrum. Well, every single one of those scenes was kind of like the Princess Diana chase. You had people walking up and saying heinous things just to get reactions. Photographers could make money back in the day anyway, probably still today, if they got a celebrity to punch them. So there was a lot of provocation of people in the media trying to get them to talk. The tabloid TV shows at the time really did play a big role in the story, right? Because they were paying so many people for Amy's stories. Well, 
paycheck journalism was a new thing, I think. I was not familiar with it. I was really shocked in the beginning when I would go to a story and find out that the story had been purchased by, you know, Inside Edition or A Current Affair. They had these huge checkbooks. It was like an echo chamber, you know, where you'd appear here and then it would amplify there. And the money was being thrown around. And I don't think people today, because there's so much inflation, realize what $50,000 was back then. I mean, it was huge money. You know, people were selling out everybody else. I mean, honestly, the people who did things to Amy were horrible for doing them. But, you know, basically, these were gym rats who, with, you know, tiny minds shaped like dumpsters. Was it just the media who played that role? It seems like all the players were also really encouraging this media circus atmosphere. I mean, initially, Mary Jo was not feeding into this. She was fighting for her life. And I pretty much blame him for everything. One of the things that you have to take into consideration was that she needed a lot of home care after she had those surgeries. And Joey was nursing her and he was by her side 24-7. She'd just been shot. She was emotionally devastated. And I honestly think that when she did things, she did it for the money to actually be able to support her kids. Okay, I love hearing this through the actual reporter's perspective who covered it at the time. But also, that's such a good point about Mary Jo. Like, of course, everyone who's watching this is thinking, why is she doing all these interviews defending him? Like, how pathetic is that? But she's in this incredibly vulnerable position, and he's literally her caretaker. Totally. And she's really going after Amy because, understandably, she's in a lot of pain, and she's very angry at the person who put her in that pain. So she goes on the offensive, and that gets a ton of attention. Okay, and so I'm sure Joey was also on the offensive. He's still denying the whole thing, right? Yes, and then there's this weird incident where Joey calls the Howard Stern show while he's, like, home tending to Mary Jo. He dials in to say that he was never involved with Amy. It's, like, again, reiterating that the affair is a lie. And he announces how much he loved his wife and was innocent and not involved in the shooting and that she was, like, hallucinating these allegations against him. And then there's also another weird detail that I found. Apparently, at some point, a recovering Mary Jo says to Howard Stern that her sex life with Joey is better than ever. <laughs> I don't know how to react to that. I don't know I how mean, to react to that. I mean, that's a fair reaction. It's just so sad. It's just sad. sad. It's, it's like sad. Howard Stern is disgusting. Joey Butterfuco is disgusting. Mary Jo is clearly a victim. Like, poor Mary Jo. Poor Mary also, jo. Amy, as we will learn, is a victim in many ways, too. Like, ugh. I think there is kind of this publicity war that's going on, right? That they're each kind of trying to get their narrative or Mm -hmm. or their version. Each side is kind of trying to play the press to their advantage in some ways. And in addition to her having sold her story for bail money, the Betafucos also have a lot of bills to pay. I mean, she did just go through this real terrible medical situation. So they also sell their story. So everyone's kind of contributing to this wild atmosphere. And I think the fact that Mary Jo is so defensive of Joey that she's like, I would castrate him if he had really done this. Like, she is becoming kind of her own character in the story. Then there are these, like, other stories about Amy that come out. There's another ex-boyfriend that comes forward and claims that she asked him for a gun. There's another man. An ex-boyfriend of Amy. 
an ex-boyfriend of Amy's. There's another man that says Amy paid him with cash and blowjobs to watch the Botafuco house. And they do eventually track down the guy who drove her to the Botafuco house the day she shot Mary Jo. And he says she paid him 800 bucks to get her the gun and to drive her there. And probably all of these people are independently selling their stories to the press at the same time. I think there's a lot of that going on. I think a phenomenon we're very familiar with now is that when a story becomes big, lots of people want to, like, kind of attach themselves to it and be interviewed in the press about it, right? It's like when Mm -hmm. there's a big tragedy, everyone wants to suddenly be like, I was involved. I knew that person. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. Okay, so this is all playing out in the summer of 1992. It's before Amy will ultimately plead guilty in September. But At this point, what is the prevailing narrative? So because all these stories have come out about her, there's all these other men that have come forward, other men who claim that they were clients of hers when she was a sex worker. There is just this torrential downpour of information that just makes her look bad and makes it clear that there's no way that a trial is going to go in her favor. And, you know, she did shoot someone, so fair. She pleads guilty to one count of reckless assault, and that carries a sentence of 5 to 15 years. But the prosecutor also promises as part of this deal to convene a grand jury to consider statutory rape charges against Joey Buttafuoco. Oh, And also under consideration is a possible murder conspiracy charge because Amy continues to tell investigators that Joey Buttafuoco put her up to this shooting. I don't know why I feel like I need to say his, like, whole name every time. In this story, it's like Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco. It's fun to say. Yeah. I mean, that is why it got so much attention also. His name really did become the punchline of a lot of jokes. Buttafuoco, Buttafuoco, Buttafuoco. Yeah. But by all accounts, this plea deal leaves Amy distraught. It really finally dawns on her that she's going to go to jail, right? That she's actually done something horrible and she's about to pay a very steep price for it. And she allocutes in a public hearing and she continues to insist that it was an accident and the prosecutors are essentially satisfied and they announce they're going to go after Joey Buttafuoco next, which Mary Jo is livid about. She's just absolutely furious that part of the plea deal involves anything that might punish Joey Buttafuoco. She's like, we've suffered enough. And then, and this is where we would play ominous music, another video of her, which was recorded without her knowledge, drops. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic. 
treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Before the break, we were talking about how a new video of Amy Fisher recorded without her knowledge has just come out. And this time, it's her latest boyfriend, a guy named Paul Makeley. He's 30, unsurprisingly much older than her, and the co-owner of a gym where she works out. And he sells a videotape he made of her to hard copy. So the night before she pleads guilty in court, she's really upset, and her lawyers give her permission to go see this guy, Makeley. Okay. And she visits him at his gym, and he's obviously setting her up so he can sell it. Oh, wow. It's not a, a sex tape or whatever we would call the previous tape, which I guess is like revenge porn in today's parlance. Mm-hmm. In this case, she's just talking to him. She's just being flirtatious with him. You know, this is obviously a girl who really needs male attention to feel better, and she's not feeling good, right? So she's come to see him, and she's not expressing any remorse, which obviously is kind of all anybody wants to see from her at this point. And it just appears to me like teenage bravado, right? She's just clearly trying to get his attention And at one point, she asks him to marry her so that they can have conjugal visits once she's in prison. And she says something that will really haunt her because it gets played by the media over and over again, which is she says, I figure if I have to go through all this pain and suffering, I'm getting a Ferrari, meaning like she's going to make all this money from this and get a Ferrari. But I mean, this is a girl who's about to go to jail for five to 15 years. She's not getting a Ferrari. And I don't think she thinks she's getting a Ferrari. She's just gone to blow off some steam during this horrible situation in her life. I mean, admittedly brought on by her, but it's just like really sad now. At the time, it's seen as evidence that she is a monster and just this absolute brat with no remorse. Exactly. 
And when the tape comes out, it devastates her. She cannot believe that she's been betrayed by yet another man that she trusted. One of the lawyers who watched the show with her says that she was destroyed by it, that she just kept saying over and over again, and I loved him, I loved him, I loved him, which, Hmm. you know, is also just a really sad detail because just a year earlier, she loved Joey Barafuco so much that she went and shot his wife. So it's like she's just so easy to give away her love or whatever this is, this, like, obsession with men and her need for them to validate her. I mean, it is easy to forget that this is a child. She's saying these things, and they sound disturbing, but, like, she's hardly a grown adult. Yeah, and obviously she doesn't have good coping mechanisms, right? I mean, that's very clear from everything I've told you so far, and that becomes even more clear. That night, she makes a first suicide attempt, and she's not successful. Her mother finds her, but in the afternoon of the next day, she makes another attempt. And at that point, her parents realize that she needs to be taken to the hospital. So they take her to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And her investigator at the time, because I think she has this like whole arsenal, this team of lawyers and investigators that are working on her case, okay. says she's been betrayed by every man she's ever met. And I think that really gets to the heart of the Amy Fisher story. Every single man in this story who comes forward betrays her in some way. And we will soon learn that includes her father. Yeah, so it's around this suicide attempt that the first allegation she makes about her father becomes public. Because in addition to selling this tape of her, Paul also sells this audio recording he received from her. It's kind of like an audio letter, I guess. And in it, she says in this like really soft, wounded voice, I just don't understand why my mom ever had me. I mean, she let my father do such terrible things to me, and I feel like she just looked the other way. She didn't do anything to stop it. What's the response to that? So the response is interesting because she immediately backtracks when it becomes public, right? She never thought this was going to be made public. When it is, she denies it. She says it's just because he's a strict father. It's pretty clear that there's more to it than that, but that is what she says at the time, and For the most part, she's never really addressed it or gone into any details. But she's in such bad shape after the release of this videotape and this audio tape Mm -hmm. that when she's released from the hospital, she voluntarily asks to be returned to prison so she can wait in prison for her sentencing so that she can Uh avoid the media circus. So she asks to return to prison. Yes, she goes to prison months before her actual sentencing is supposed to happen because... To get away. Oh, wow. Literally to get away from the media. Literally to get away from this thing that she's just become so much bigger than her that she clearly cannot manage for herself. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that honestly is the most surprising or telling detail to me so far is that she has determined that being in jail is actually a better place for her voluntarily than being in the outside world. I mean, it's like in a matter of four months from June to, I think this is now September, she's gone from being a high school student, clearly there was sordid stuff happening behind that, to voluntarily going to prison so she doesn't have to face the outside world. Yeah, it really does tell you a lot about how difficult her mental— Well, not just even her mental health, but her— The spectacle of the media, like the media was that bad that she thought she had to go into jail (laughs) to escape them. But on top of that, as you have said throughout, 
everyone in her life is coming forward to sell a story in one way or another. Yeah. And the contrast is what happens to Joey, which is, you know, not much. I mean, he eventually— Yeah, what does happen to Joey? The official final chapter of the story is that Joey— is eventually brought up on charges. He's indicted on 19 counts of statutory rape, sodomy, and endangering the welfare of a child, which sounds bad, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. But he pleads out, and he goes away for one count of statutory rape. Oh, he okay. admits to knowing her age, but only admits to having sex with her one time and has his lawyer say publicly that he basically only admitted this because he was trying to save his family, so he's still kind of denying it in some weird way. Okay. And he goes to prison for four months. It's compared to Amy's five to 15-year sentence. I know we'll get to this later, but she is not able to live a normal life. No, not at all. And we're definitely going to get into all of that in part two, but I think let's leave it here for now. And there's still so much more to the story, so to hear the rest of the Amy Fisher saga and all its twists and turns, join us for part two. It's already in your feed. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about? and want us to explore in a future episode, email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at NYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atia is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stump and Katrina Norbell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Coscarelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Banacarum and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. See you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. 
That's CheapCaribbean.com.